Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. In a poll last week, 76% of British voters said they were concerned about government corruption. For the purposes of the poll, the term was defined as dishonest or fraudulent conduct by those in power. It seems a pretty loose definition that can include everything from an elected representative cheating on their expenses to a police officer taking a bribe to a foreign autocrat attempting to influence another country's election. When something is so amorphous and so far-reaching, how do we fight it? To help us through this maze, I am delighted to welcome today's guest. He's London-born but US-based and teaches at Georgetown University specialising on corruption, the founder of Transparency International and the Partnership for Transparency Fund, and author of several books, the most recent of which, The Enablers, is an expose of the symbiotic systems with which Western democracies enable industrial-scale corruption by kleptocratic regimes. Welcome, Professor Frank Vogel. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be with you and... I'm very much looking forward to this conversation, Alex. It's a pleasure to have you. Frank, let us begin with definitions. What would you define as corruption? And is it important to define it tightly and split it into distinct categories? Or is the low-ranking official in Italy taking a brown envelope for some petty reason actually part of the same global network that allows, let's say, someone like Lukashenko to steal an election? I look at corruption in public sector terms, in government terms, as the abuse of entrusted power for personal gain. When Vladimir Putin uses his power to make himself incredibly wealthy Mm. by effectively stealing vast amounts of money, that certainly is corruption. But I call that grand corruption. Mm. When the person who you mentioned, that low-level official in Italy, takes something in a brown envelope, which is a bribe for some service, that is what I would call petty corruption. But we never have petty corruption on a vast, widespread scale when you don't have grand corruption in place. So I like to focus very much on the abuse of public office Hmm. for private gain. So the low level depends on the systemic in a way. Absolutely. Mm. Your book draws in part on information revealed by the Panama Papers, and we have recently had even more revelations in the Pandora Papers. What did they expose, just broadly, that we didn't already know? First of all, I think for the general public as a whole, there is a sense of shock when one reads that political leaders in your own country have been on the take, that Mm. they've had secret foreign bank accounts, that they may have been involved in tax evasion, that they own incredibly large mansions on the other side of the world that you ask yourselves, if they've only been civil servants or politicians, how could they have afforded it? So there's a shock value here. Mm -hmm. Individual cases are often new and haven't been exposed before. But for those people who follow corruption widely across the world, it really isn't a surprise. It sort of fill-ins the the detail, but the broad shape of what goes on is well known. It shines a light. It's very important. It shines a light 
on actual activities by people you can identify who've used their dirty money to invest in objects like big mansions that you also can identify. Okay, so on that specifically, as a result of the facts revealed by the Pandora Papers, the organization you founded, Transparency International, identified the UK as one of a handful of countries that must take action specifically on the issue of property sales. Can you explain what goes on in what you term London grad and why it is important? My colleagues and I, who co-founded Transparency International 30 years ago, have looked at corruption in every country. In the UK, many, many people, ordinary citizens, find that they have great difficulty being able to afford a decent home, say in London or London suburbs, because market prices have gone through the roof in part because there has been so much foreign money coming in to buying up flats and houses. And then those flats and houses stay empty. What is worse, most neighbors don't even know who the owners of those flats and houses are, (laughs) because very often they are bought through shell companies that do not have to identify the name of the owner. So there is legislation in Britain which is not yet fully enforced, to ensure that in future, the company who buys the property has to disclose who the true owner is. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those sales have been in cash, which makes them suspicious. A lot of the names of the owners, I suspect, are very suspicious characters as well. Once you get transparency in here, then I think you go a long way towards reducing the inflow of stolen loot into the London property market and the property markets of Vancouver and Miami and Manhattan and Munich mm-hmm. and many other centers. You, you are leading me beautifully to my next question with your comment about stolen loot, because one of the other areas you identify in the book is the art market. You very much focus on the sales side, on the fact that these shell corporations, where it's incredibly difficult to find out who the owner is, can buy up these incredibly uh, expensive works of art as uh, an investment. And I was recently reading another article which looks at the supply end, where a lot of the big auction houses are also in trouble for accepting stolen goods from especially areas where there is conflict. So has the art scene in London just become a great big laundering machine, both on the way in and the way out? I don't know enough about the finer points of the London art market. I can tell you that a US Senate investigation into the American art market and often there are the same big players in London as there are in Mm -hmm. New York and Los Angeles, that Senate report concluded that the art market is the most opaque of all markets. You don't know who the seller is. You don't know where the seller got the the piece of art that he or she might be putting up for auction or trading through a dealer, and you don't know who the buyers are. Very often, the art industry, the trade, the dealers, the auction houses are not under any legal obligation as of now to do real due diligence 
on their clients, the buyers and the sellers. There's something very ironic in the the most beautiful items hiding the ugliest practices. One of the most prominent personalities involved in the Pandora Papers is Mohammed Amersi, who also happens to be one of the biggest Tory donors in the last couple of years. I don't want to focus on personalities today. I just want to ask the general point. Is the fight against global corruption, how important is tackling political funding, donations? It's absolutely central, but I don't think it's central in the sense that you are talking about. Uh Yes, unquestionably, some of the kleptocrats and their associates are putting money directly into political parties. But the much, much more serious complicity is that the enablers, which are the bankers, the lawyers, the property brokers, and so on, in London, in New York, and so forth, aid and abet the kleptocrats to move their money into safe investments. And they, at the same time, are so plugged into the political establishments in the UK, in the US, in the EU, that they ensure that their operations are not fully regulated. That's where the political influence comes, and it involves the transfer of staggering amounts of money. We recently did an interview with Samuel Popkin on this podcast, and and one of the points he raised was that attempts to regulate this plugging into the political system by uh, money can backfire. He cited the McCain campaign as an example, which in the end had the effect of moving the money out of the Republican Party, which had an interest in sort of balancing extreme and more moderate demands in a way to outside organizations like the Tea Party, which were completely unconstrained in their demands and became so fundamental in securing the nomination, they ended up with more of a stranglehold. On politicians. How do we balance that? How, how do you balance the need for money to flow into legitimate political campaigns with restricting the money that flows into slightly more opaque ones? There's a lot of suspicion in this country, and I'm sure in the States, about the funding of so-called think tanks and pressure groups where, you know, the donors are never declared, at least when someone gives money to a politician, it's usually in some sort of register. It's when it moves in this outside general sphere of dark money that it becomes even more of a problem. How do we fight that? It's very interesting the way you phrase that, you know, because your focus is solely on the money. I would argue that's only a part of the problem. Mm -hmm. When you look at the type of people that I write about who lead the biggest banks in the world, for example, they are incredibly networked into the political elites of their countries. Hmm. They are part of the political establishment. They are members of the same clubs. And they talk to the politicians and have access to the politicians in ways that you and I do not have Mm. simply because of their skill at networking and the powerful institutions they represent, the 
HSBCs, the Barclays, JP Morgan Chases, and so on. So that's where major influence is exerted. Now on money, you are absolutely right when you go down into the weeds of money and politics. But in the United States, and if you took, say, the 2020 elections here, more than $1 billion came from the financial sector. We know about it. We can tell you exactly which banks provided how much money. Transparency is not the whole solution because what happens with all that money is it buys access. And bankers don't mind you knowing that they put in large amounts of money into a political party, a political campaign. The point is they want the access, they get the access. At Mm. the same time, they have armies of lobbyists and all of them are working towards one goal, minimum regulation by government of their industry, which enables them to maximize their short-term profits and frankly encourages them to take risks, including risks of perpetrating crime. That's fascinating. Something struck me in the book. You you say that one of the characteristics of a kleptocracy is using public funds, and I quote, for rewarding and compensating their most valuable supporters to ensure their loyalty. And I can't help thinking that the pandemic emergency seems to have created the perfect cover for all sorts of governments around the world, including Western democracies, to to grab more executive power and to circumvent ordinary rules of procurement. And many times this has resulted in an orgy of awarding contracts to the supporters. Do, Do you think the pandemic has pushed Western democracies like the UK towards more corruption? Absolutely. I don't know the specifics of the UK, but you go to many countries. The organization I work with, the Partnership for Transparency Fund, right now is working with civil society in Uganda, in Argentina, in Zambia, in Ghana, in India, to try to help expose the corruption in the distribution of vaccines and healthcare related to the pandemic, Mm. because there is so much fraud. There is so much corruption and governments have clamped down on civil society. They've clamped down on investigative journalists, all in order to be able to pursue secret deals with their cronies. And you are absolutely right. If you look at this on a global scale, what we've seen is that since the pandemic, there has been a rise in authoritarian power across the world. and we don't see it decelerating in any way. It's a very, very concerning development. Is there a country out there that you think currently handles this issue, this disabling of the enablers, better than another? Is there a sort of paradigm out there that we can look to? I mean, no country is going to be perfect, but is there one that stands out for doing it better? No. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to be very blunt about this. Unfortunately, I can't name a single good performer. For years, Denmark was seen in survey after survey as being the least corrupt country in the world. 
It came number one for cleanliness anti-corruption in the annual Transparency International Index. However, Danske Bank of Denmark, the largest bank, was responsible for laundering $235 billion of Russian money and money from Azerbaijan and Belarus as well through its tiny branch in the tiny country of Estonia. The amount of money that went through Estonia was bigger than the economy of Estonia. (laughs) And the regulators in Estonia and the regulators in Denmark never caught what was going on. They were asleep. And the whole case only emerged because of a whistleblower at the bank. And that has really underscored for me the point, even in countries where governments are perceived not to be corrupt, the enablers are at work helping the kleptocrats to launder their money Mm. and safeguard it. Our Foreign Affairs Committee published a report in May 2018 following the Salisbury poisonings that found that even with the strongest sort of measures in place, the ease with which the Russian government could raise funds in London meant that we were unable basically to combat that sort of state aggression. Do you think we suffer from a lack of commitment primarily to do something about money laundering? Or is it even more frightening to countenance the possibility that our system is already so symbiotically dependent on these enablers that it is impossible to clean it up? I don't think we have a choice. We must clean it up. We live unfortunately, in times when authoritarian regimes are increasingly aggressive around the world and there are increasing numbers of them, while the democracies are troubled. You started this interview by mentioning an opinion poll in the UK. Hmm. There are similar opinion polls across the European Union, across the United States. Trust in government is very low. Perceptions of corruption in government are very high. And we have to understand, we have to strengthen our democracies. And part of the way to do that is also to counter the rise of authoritarian regimes that mean us no good, that interfere in our elections. And we need to be very aggressive about this. And the key comes in, one, enforcing the regulations against criminal money laundering. Two, It comes in terms of ensuring there is real punishment for the heads of institutions that pursue these crimes. You know, not a single chairman of a major bank has ever been criminally prosecuted, let alone fired from his position because his bank has been caught laundering vast amounts of money. And that has to change. We have to change the penalties. We have to ensure meaningful enforcement if we are going to fundamentally address this very, very big problem. And if I may say so, too many people, including some of those House of Commons committees that have reported on these issues in the past, have been a little bit complacent. They've said, well, it's so bad, there's not much we could do about it. Mm -hmm. I'm afraid to say... That's the absolutely wrong attitude because we are living in dangerous times. Mm. This affects our security and our democracy. 
Anne Applebaum made a similar point recently with relation to what is going on right now in, in Belarus and Ukraine. And she basically says that the West has underestimated the danger because they fail to see that regimes like Russia have an ongoing interest in showing Western democratic structures to be slow, ineffective and unstable because it proves their model of autocracy is better. In the book you write that as these sorts of governments gain wealth and greater security, a new form of Cold War has emerged because they expand their power beyond their borders and take an active interest in weakening democracies. How big a danger is this? And can this Cold War spill into a hot war if you react in a way that does actually cut off their export of funds to the West? I think the dangers are very real. I think the one point I would have added to Anne Applebaum's thesis is that she doesn't take into adequate account the role of money in all of this. Mm. Money is what's strengthening the kleptocrats to a large degree, and it's dirty money, it's stolen money. How is the influence exerted? Well, for example, China today is the largest official creditor to the countries of sub-Saharan Africa. The deals the Chinese have made with so many African countries are secret. Not even the International Monetary Fund has the details. Mm. We do not know what leverage has been involved in those deals. We do not know if the money that the Chinese have supplied to these countries involves kickbacks to government officials in those countries. But that's just one way in which the Chinese are greatly expanding their influence. The Russians, let's take Gazprom, is the largest natural gas company state-owned in Russia. The 2018 report you mentioned earlier by the House of Commons noted that on the day that Prime Minister May introduced sanctions in the House of Parliament on Russians uh, after the Salisbury event, that same day Gazprom borrowed hundreds of millions of pounds and euros in the international market. It was legal. But Gazprom now owes the international community, and that means ultimately investors through British pension funds and insurance yeah, companies yeah, yeah. and so on, owes them $100 billion. And Gazprom is now exerting political pressure on a lot of West European countries, pushing up energy prices as part of Putin's effort to undermine the European Union. These things are connected. And money so often is the connector. Mm. And we have to address how we deal with that problem. The message of your book is ultimately, I think, a hopeful one. And the source of this hope is, as you mentioned, the fact that the public is increasingly aware of and concerned about corruption. And it is getting angry and it's going out in the street and protesting. Yet if you chart the ascent of, say, Orban, or Erdogan, or even Trump, their whole hook was anti-corruption, to drain the swamp. They have used precisely that anger to move countries towards more corruption. How do we counteract that paradox? I think one of the most encouraging recent developments 
has been an increasing focus on the themes that are actually in my book. I don't claim great originality in that sense. I think there are an increasing number of politicians on both sides of the Atlantic who see the threat and want to do something about it. Mm. President Biden has called for a summit for democracy, which will take place on the 9th and 10th of December. It's a virtual summit involving governments from 100 countries. The main issue on that summit for democracy is how to counter authoritarian regimes with focus on human rights and corruption. Hmm. This is an important step, recognizing by the leaders of governments that we have to do something. We have to act. This is not something we can just sit back and allow to continue because, as you said, the trends from Hungary, from Turkey, and many other countries are truly disturbing. I want to ask you one final question. It's a toughie. <laughs> Gore Vidal once commented that democracy is bribery on the highest scale. And putting Vidal's wit aside, is there something to the notion that any system which relies on the selling of a candidate to a majority, the selling of policies to groups with competing interests, to industries with competing interests, is and will always be a corrupting process. Are there deeper questions to assess here? Everybody, I think, will admit democracy is a flawed system of government, just less flawed than all of the alternatives. (laughs) And one of the great flaws is the propensity of people in power or who seek power, business power, government power, to use corrupt practices. If our democracy is to be healthy, we must be constantly vigilant in this respect. We must be constantly on our guard against the corruption and seek to do something about it. We need to expose it. We need to have transparency, but we also need accountability and we need enforcement. If you have those three elements, then I think we can still believe that the benefits of a democracy and of freedom are by far superior to all the alternative forms of government. Professor Frank Vogel, it has been illuminating and troubling in equal measure chatting to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much indeed. The Enablers, How the West Supports Kleptocrats and Corruption Endangering Our Democracy, is out now. Remember, there's a new Bunker Daily on Wednesday, Thursday and Saturday mornings, your Start the Week supplement on Mondays, your Culture supplement on Fridays, and a longer weekly full panel episode every Tuesday. So don't forget to subscribe, review and rate us. You can also support us on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. Let me leave you with these words from Frank Vogel's The Enablers. The kleptocrats need the enablers because they constantly strive to place their personal wealth in international, mostly Western, investment assets. They export their funds because they do not trust their national laws, and their wealth could be in jeopardy if they lose their power. They have far greater faith in the integrity of Western courts, and they move their funds into our markets because... Thanks to the skills of the enablers and insufficiently effective Western anti-money laundering laws and regulations, they can. This is Alex Andreo in the bunker saying over and out. 
The Bunker Daily was presented by Alex Andreev. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>